0: Let's read this together. I will uh, read it for you, in fact. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Let's bow our heads and pray together. God, we have great expectation for the next minutes that we're to share together as we open your word. Expectation That this this is more than just a human exercise, thinking and talking, trying to understand with human minds what's written in human words. No, this is a divine task where we are endeavoring to understand the very mind and the heart of God as communicated through these words which bring to us the very voice of God, who is sufficient for this task. I pray that you would help me in my weakness pray that you would help all of us as hearers of your word in our weakness send your holy spirit he's the one we most need in this time give us help help us lord jesus we pray in jesus name amen who here has been watching the olympics so far lots of fun right i love the olympics i've loved it since i was a kid been committed to watching it closely for years, and even every time I hear that great Olympic theme song that comes on the television, I almost get goosebumps automatically. It's just sort of this natural reaction, the excitement, the joy, and I'm fired up. I mean, even though the programming on TV is just on way too late at night, losing sleep every single night, I'm tired, but I'm inspired. How about you? Right? I'm so inspired these days, I kind of want to dust off my old soccer cleats, and have a go at it. You know, I want to even dig up my my old high school Speedos and get the goggles back on. And, oh, someone's saying, no. He's probably right, Chris. You're probably right. You know, I'm so inspired, I'm going to almost consider naming our third baby almost on its way, Simone, and I'm just about ready to finish every sermon from now on with one of these. I mean, what do you think? What do you think? I'll take my medal later, all right? Look, I love the Olympics. I don't know about you. I love it. And one of the most moving things for me is to watch the medal ceremony at the end, right? Do you ever linger around to watch that? You know, I mean, it's sort of this moment where you kind of watch them fumble through the star-spangled banner, not sure if they really know it. That's okay. They know the camera's on them. And then the tears well up in their eyes, don't they? And you don't really know what's going on in their minds, but my best bet every time I get moved by them, my best bet is that they're thinking about all those hours, days, weeks, years of blood, sweat, and tears. The hard work, the sacrifice, the pain, the loss, the loss for the sake of gain, their workout, their commitment their discipline, I'm betting that's part of what's moving their hearts, moving them even to tears. And so it's been hard for me not to think about these different passages in Scripture, especially in the letters of Paul, where he takes this picture of Olympic racing, of Olympic-sized challenges, and he says, that's how you ought to be pursuing the Christian life with that measure of commitment and discipline, even training, with that level of activity, that the Christian faith is, is one that's sort of like getting your runner shoes on and Paul says beating your body, training it like you're about to run a marathon. You're going to get the prize, but will you train? Will you fight? Will you do the Christian Jesus turns our attention to a similar sort of idea here at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Where after giving us overture after overture of teaching and promise and command, now he puts before us this question, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do about it about me? Jesus says. Jesus is asking us for a response. We started looking at this last week as he started summing things up, calling us to make a choice, to choose life, to choose the narrow way, the small gate, to choose Christ. Now he turns our attention to the doing of our faith. Action, response, obedience, he actually calls us and reminds us of the necessity of doing. But interestingly, he also points out the insufficiency of doing. Both the necessity of doing our faith, but also the insufficiency of doing our faith. And what do I mean? You see in verse 21, Jesus really doesn't hold back, does he? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You may not know, but in the ancient languages, calling someone's name twice communicates intimacy. It communicates personal knowledge. You don't do that with a stranger, you see. When God calls out to Abraham, he says, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham. When Jesus confronts and meets Saul on the road to Damascus, he calls to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Repeating someone's name conveys intimacy. It also conveys emotion, even a sense of longing. And this is the way that people are calling out to Jesus, he tells us. What does this tell us about them, these people he's describing? They self-identify as followers of Jesus. You might say they're what we call professing Christians. Lord, Lord. They're, they're, They're ones who identify Jesus as Lord on some level. They're what you might call orthodox in doctrine." They've got certain things, maybe key things, right. They're even passionate. They're calling out to him, fervently, you see, but Jesus still tells us in almost shocking manner, it's not enough. He responds in verse 23, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. They know so much. They do so much. They experience so much. And yet, he says, I never knew you. He denies that they have a genuine relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus. Why? Well, he tells us, only the one who, what, does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. He carries out this theme throughout this passage we're looking at. In the second half, in verse 24 to 27, Jesus tells a little story. A man builds his house on a rock. Jesus calls him wise for doing so. Why? Well, because when the storm comes, that house doesn't fall. Its foundation is strong. And then there's another man who builds his house on sand. Jesus calls him foolish. Why? Because when a storm comes, that house falls with a great crash. Its foundation is weak. And what was the difference between the two? What well, Jesus says, the wise man is like everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And the foolish man is like everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. Jesus really calls us out on this, doesn't he? Several years ago, I remember my wife calling me out on the mess that I tend to leave I was going to say in our room but really everywhere in the house. She challenged me to step up a little bit more and I deserved that challenge and explained to me that, well, we just need to come up with a better plan and a system and maybe that I need to be a little more motivated and to notice things around the house. And she was absolutely right. In fact, this wasn't a one-time conversation, unfortunately. But I remember on one occasion, and I'm sure she does. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've repeated this several times as well. I responded to her. Instead of saying, yes, of course, I need to clean up the room, I said to her, well, at least I want to clean the room. And I I really tried to explain this to her. I made sure she understood the difference. I said, at least I want to clean my room because some people don't even want to. And it didn't work. Didn't get any points for that. But see, I love the good intentions of my heart, don't you? You know, the good intentions, that means I'm like, oh, oh, basically almost there. The job was basically, basically done. Not done, but basically done. So give me some credit. Jesus says good intentions are not enough. Jesus says intellectualization is not enough. You know the right things about Jesus. Do you know him personally? He also says inspiration is not enough. Maybe you find yourself going to church to get your weekly uplift, and that's it. Jesus says, the only one that counts is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. This is consistent with other parts of scripture that give a similar kind of warning, exhortation. Ezekiel 33, the prophet says, My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. James chapter 1, verse 22, Do not merely listen to the word, And so deceive yourselves, do what it says. 1 John chapter 2, likewise, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Friends, I want to keep it plain and simple for starters here. Jesus is telling us to put his words into practice. So, what are you going to do? Especially if you've been a part of this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically over the last couple months, the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard many ways in which Jesus is calling you to the way of his kingdom, the way of the gospel, living in light of his grace. Will you battle against hate in your heart? This hatred which Jesus actually calls the murder of the heart. Will you be generous with your money, with your time, with your heart, even when nobody notices and even when no one says thank you? Will you love people, not just those who are like you or not just those who like you, but even those who hurt you? Will you say no to resentment and retaliation? Will you love even your own enemies? Will you not just refrain from sexual violations in body, but also in the heart? And not just violations, will you also promote healthy sexuality in those around you, friend, spouse, and neighbor? Will you pray or learn to pray, not in a way where you're bribing God to get him to do something for you, but rather because, and simply because, you love Him. We don't like doing. Jesus is calling us to do. We don't like doing. Doing takes effort. Doing takes commitment. I think part of it, at least when I look into my own heart, is this, doing feels unsophisticated. It feels unimpressive. You know, some of us like to, no, love to talk about big ideas. You like to reflect. You like to debate. You like small group Bible studies, but your least favorite part is when the group gets to what's called practical application. You'd rather talk about theology and concepts, not me, my life, and what I need to do in response. I mean, come on, give me a book to read or a a hard idea to figure out. It feels not just unsophisticated, even unimpressive, because everyone can do it, can they? I just want an intense spiritual experience, Uh, not follow-through, not accountability, not a changed life. In fact, sometimes I think the reason why we don't, give enough attention to the doing of the gospel is because we don't really want to change. We really understand deep down inside that change means to lose control, which is the last thing good Washingtonians want to lose. Control over my life, control over what I get to say and do, what's right, what's up, what's down. Jesus calls us To what you might actually describe as obedience. Obedience. We're uncomfortable with that word, aren't we? It sounds funny to modern ears cold, authoritarian, to some ears, even abusive. Obedience. I think we don't like the word because we don't like absolute authority. Obedience, though, as the Bible describes it, is actually a beautiful word. It's a beautiful kind of relationship with God. It's honorable. Because obedience doesn't need need to be inhumane. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's in the doing of the gospel, in our obedience to Christ, that we actually finally become fully and truly human. Because what we have before us in the commands of Christ is the way that human life was always meant to be lived. Loving God and loving those around us as we have been loved. Obedience is a a good word, a redeemable word. In fact, those words inhumane, servile, authoritarian, cold, are the very opposite, or the way that the Bible describes the way that we are to relate to God in our doing. We're told that his commands are actually for our good. And so to obey means to actually receive the love of God for us, even when it's tough love for us. We're told that his commands are accompanied Not just by the command itself, but by spiritual power to follow them. So it's not a hoax. God isn't telling you to do things and then standing back and watching you flail and flounder. He's giving you his Holy Spirit. He's changing your heart. He's teaching you to love. He's making you more like Jesus. So obedience is full of glory. And his commands are for God's glory. We display to those around us, even to God himself, that he's worth it. He's worth our trust. He's worth our love. Don't you understand? See, true obedience as the Bible describes it. Yes, it is the submission of the heart. It's something that we probably need to work through in our lives more and more that we are subject to a higher authority than ourselves namely God and if that sounds terrifying to you can you believe that very authority to which you're called to submit yourselves is the same authority that purposed before all of humanity the redemption of lost humanity that authority was the very authority that laid itself down in the person of Christ Not lording it over you and me, but dying for you and me in order to give us life. So that we can freely surrender to the one that we know will only do us good. Because the logic of the gospel is if God gave up his only son to do you ultimate good, why is he going to stop doing you good now? Surely, obedience implies surrender to God's authority. But it also entails love for God. Because it's never meant to be done in a servile way, but always has a response to God's love for us. It's always meant to be an act of trust, of dependency upon God. I follow what he says is right because I'm trusting in what he sees when I can't see. I'm trusting in his wisdom when I know I'm foolish, even when I feel I'm wise. And so we have places like John 14 that push us in this direction when Jesus himself says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. You see, your obedience is an act of love. And an act of trust. In 1 John 2, that says, if anyone obeys his word, God's word, love for God is truly made complete in them. You see, Jesus is pointing us to doing, a certain kind of doing, an obeying kind of a doing. And that pushes us even deeper into what Jesus is really getting at here in this passage. Because did you notice something quirky? That as much as he tells us that we ought to be doing the deeds of the gospel, he also says there's a certain kind of doing that's not enough. You notice there's this place in verse 22 where he says, many will say to me on that day, which is, of course, the day of judgment in the future, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles." And remember, Jesus has already shown to us, as we've discussed, that he's talking about people that might be saying the right things about Jesus, and that's necessary, but it's not enough. And they might be believing some of the right things about him, and that's necessary, but it's not enough. And they might be feeling the right things about him as well, and that's good and necessary, But that's not enough. He says, only the one who does the will of my Father is the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. But just when you're about to say, oh, okay, I get it. It's about doing the right things. He makes sure that we know, no, it's not just your doing. Because evidently for these folks, the doing of prophecy, speaking about, teaching about Jesus, was not enough. And the driving out of demons, even giving people spiritual freedom and liberation, wasn't enough. Or performing miracles, impressive public acts of compassion, not enough. You see, because activity, even religious activity, friends, is not enough. Jesus is pointing us to a different kind of doing, a deeper doing. Because you remember the people in that first paragraph, everyone looks the same on the outside, don't they? Even they were surprised. What do you think their neighbors thought of them when Jesus gave this surprising verdict? You can't tell which one's the real deal. They all profess the same thing about Jesus. They all pursue with passion. They're all actively serving others. They look the same on the outside, but something's different. Where? On the inside. Where? Well, Jesus gives us a hint in verse 23. He calls them evildoers, or literally workers of lawlessness. Well, there's certainly nothing evil or lawless about telling people about Jesus, or driving out demons, or healing people, or setting them free. So. So, so, there must be something evil, something lawless, underneath the surface of even those very fine deeds, the motives of the heart, the reasons why they did these things, whether for self or for Christ, whether for their glory or for his, you see. And remember that two houses being built, both of them look good from the outside. Both look secure. They look the same on the outside, but what's the difference? The difference is what's underneath and unseen, the foundation of these buildings, the rock or the sand. You see, Jesus is pointing us to a different kind of doing, a deeper doing, a doing that comes from the rich depths of a changed heart. Doing that comes from a a soul that's been transformed by the love of God in Christ. A life that's been turned upside down, or rather right side up, by the healing grace of God. See, Jesus has already taught us this, hasn't he? That this doing of the Sermon on the Mount Isn't just about being more moral. It's not just about doing more religious activity. He's told us it's about cultivating poverty of spirit. You know, that spiritual ability to say that I'm not able to save myself or fix myself and to say that with joy because the Savior has come. The doing of forgiving your enemies. The doing of judging yourself before you judge others, which is another way of saying unrooting self-righteousness from your heart. Walking around and living as if you're just, just a little bit, or maybe a lot, a bit better than everyone else. The quiet pride that infects all of our relationships, even our words. The doing that Jesus requires is the doing of repentance. Of humbly and admitting our sin of our deep desperation for the mercy of God. The doing of cultivating what Jesus calls meekness, this strange mixture of strength and self-control. The humility of not retaliating when you're wronged. Of taking the low place like the one who made himself low. You see, because where does your heart and your life get changed like this? How do you begin to take the doing deeds of the gospel and do them in a way where they are actually acceptable to God in Christ? How do you see this kind of heart change begin to happen? It's when you begin to experience the call of the Son to the Father. Jesus tells us about those who would call out to him one day, Lord, Lord. Jesus was the one who himself lived every moment of all of eternity past in relationship with his Father. With eternal intimacy and never-ending knowledge of one another, of mutual service and self-giving generosity. That every time the son called out to his father, his father would respond, well, of course I know you. This is my beloved son. Until the one day on the cross, after much suffering, when Jesus cried out to his father, Lord, Lord, My God, my God, his father responded, I never knew you. I don't know you. In utter wrath and judgment that you and I deserve for our evil hearts and our lawless deeds. Jesus, who suffered on the cross, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? experiencing the rupture of perfect intimacy and union between father and son. This Jesus who bore the wrath that we deserve. This Jesus who did the will of his father, who obeyed him completely and yet suffered infinitely. Who even the night before he was crucified quivered before the terrifying task of the cross and prayed to his father if there's any way that we could do this differently could we do it and yet in total obedient surrender prayed in the end not my will but yours be done you see authentic Christians and true doers of the gospel who know the approval by grace, the approval and acceptance of their Savior, are those whose hearts have been transformed by the love of God like this, who've taken in this story, the story of the one who has loved you so. You see, authentic Christians are doers who can never be saved by their own doing, but rather only by the doing of Jesus. Authentic Christians are doers who, when questioned by Jesus, don't say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things, but who confess, Lord, Lord, that's right, you did all these things. Living the life that I should have lived, dying the death that I should have died, who confess even our best doings are infected by our selfishness and our lawless hearts. Authentic Christians are doers who do not in order to be saved, but rather who do as an overflow of the joy of their salvation. Do you know this kind of doing, this kind of obeying, because of the grace of God, because of the love of God, because of your joy in God and Christ, in the good news of the gospel? Because Jesus calls you to do. What are you not doing? But he calls you to a different kind of doing. A doing that comes from the rich depths of a changed heart. And your heart won't be changed until you look to the one and love the one who did all there is to do in order to save you so and love you so. Now, dear friends, will you now? Let's pray. We need grace upon grace upon grace to follow hard after you with Olympic fervor and diligence. Humbly receiving your grace and good news, Jesus, come bring the cross near to our hearts that we might obey you freshly and humbly and satisfyingly, not only to our hearts but also to yours, we pray in Jesus' name.